welcome to Dads with Daughters. In this show, we spotlight dads, resources, and more to help you be the best dad you can be. Welcome back to the Dads with Daughters podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lewis. I'm really excited to have you back again this week. And today, I always say this, but you know, today I am really excited. I was able to hear our guests today speak at a conference that I was at. I went to the National Association of Student Personnel Administrators. That's the full name. They, they go by NASPA. But um, I heard him speak and he was talking about some pretty amazing things when it comes to social justice and education. But he also started bringing in some pieces about being a father today, being a man today. And as I was hearing him speak, and as I think you'll you'll hear when you hear him speak today, he brought up some really engaging things that allowed me to think differently about the way that I am a father, but also the way that I think about myself as a man. And I think that you're going to be thinking about that too. So today we've got Carlos Andreas Gomez. He is with us today. If you've never heard his name before, he is a Colombian-American poet, speaker, actor, and equity and inclusion strategist. He's from New York City. He now lives down in Atlanta, Georgia. He's an author of a number of different books that I'll put links in the notes today. He's got a brand new book out called Fractures, which is a book of poetry. Another book that we're going to talk about today is his memoir called Man Up, Reimagining Modern Manhood. So we're going to be talking about a lot of different things, but but first and foremost, we got to meet Carlos and, and allow for you to get to know him as a father and as a man today. Carlos, thanks so much for being here. Chris, thank you so much for having me. I love the work that you're doing in this community, and I'm just thrilled to discover what you all are doing and to connect with it. I'm always excited to be able to meet other dads, to be able to talk about fatherhood, be, be able to, to learn from other dads too, you know, because we're all on a similar path, but a different path. And we do things in different ways and that's okay. So one of the things that I love to do is I want to, I want to turn the clock back in time. And you've got two kids, you've got a son and a daughter, but your daughter is your oldest. And this being the dads with daughters podcast, I want to turn that clock back in time on your daughter. So when you think about that first time that you found out that you were going to be a dad to a daughter. Turn that clock back in time. Tell me about that experience for you. I remember the exact moment when I realized that I was going to be a father to a daughter because I found out when my first child was born and I was handed the child <laughs> in the operating room after an emergency C-section and they said, it's a girl. And I had already been thinking a lot about what it would mean to raise a child of any gender in the world, you know, and I, I thought deeply about it and I thought about the responsibilities and obligations that, of me in particular to raise a child of a gender that is not my own. Thinking about intersection points, my wife is black, so I've been thinking about too to also raise somebody who's going to have a very different racialized experience than my own a black and Latinx daughter or son or child or non-binary child or whatever gender, I, I, I was thinking about the responsibilities of that. And I think it's very different though. No matter how many articles or books you read or documentaries you watch or discussion groups or classes or whatever you might do, all that theory doesn't mean a whole lot in the moment when there's a sweaty, adorable, screaming little human in your arms that you are going to have to take home very soon 
and you're accountable to if with your partner if you're so lucky to have a partner and so there were so many thoughts that went through my head but i remember in that initial moment i had spent throughout my partner's pregnancy when our daughter was in utero i would i would read i would i would l- like lean up against <laughs> right next to my my partner's uterus and read <laughs> Pablo Neruda and read, you know, I would read poems, I'd read stories. And, you know, all the, the you know, the articles I've read, they say, you know, the, you know, the, your child will be able to hear your voice and recognize your voice. And I was like, ah, who knows if that's true. But I did it every night, the entire pregnancy. And then, you know, when our daughter was born, she was screaming, like, very good, healthy child. And then I started talking to her. And I said, you know, I, I've been so excited to meet you. I love you so much. I'm so it's so exciting to finally meet you. And she's these big eyelashes and she like blink blink and she looked up at me like almost like a little bit perplexed and then kind of like curious. And then she fell asleep for 30 minutes in my arms. <laughs> and that was the most she slept for 3 weeks, but she slept for 30 minutes right in that moment. So, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think more it was just more emotions than I could name or understand, but feeling this, I think, equally ecstatic and excited and also overwhelmed with the way I was being called to task in that moment, thinking all the things I've read, all the things I've talked about or planned for as much as I can. Now there is this human being that I have to show up for in every moment for the rest of their life. Now, I hear you. And, you know, one of the things that I think was really interesting was when you you did talk about the fact that your wife is black. You come from a Latin background, and so your 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 children are growing up with a very different experience that you had growing up, that your wife had growing up. And as fathers, we have to help them to be able to figure out what that path for themselves will be, meshing together all the past experiences that we've had as mothers, as fathers, as sons, as daughters, as whatever it might be. How do you reconcile that? How have you been able to reconcile that to be able to allow for your children to have their own unique identities, but also living with the understanding that their identities are also going to be brought, they're going to be learning from the experiences that both you and their mother are bringing to the table as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think what what you said is really on point and really powerful to say that their particular experiences of both of our children will have different sort of inflection points and be a little bit different than both my experience and my wife's experience, you know, us being an interracial family. And, you know, they're obviously like common points of connection. But, you know, like, I think us trying to be a household that deeply values being culturally competent, being aware about the world and about identities and how they intersect and how they impact the way we move through the world. And I think one of the strategies we've used is we they both of our each of our kids have multiple godparents that are positioned differently in terms of their identities and that was very intentional. In addition to obviously being people we deeply love and trust, but they have a big sort of network of, of kind of like aunties and uncles and relatives and, and guides that they will have in life that I think will be able to pick up giving them insight and guidance and perspective on identities that we that, that both my that either my wife or I have no context for. And I think that's really important too as parents recognizing there are, are different important lessons that need to be taught to our kids that we are not most equipped to teach them. 
And to me, some of that is delineating, saying, who are the people we love and trust who will be able to teach them the things that we cannot teach them? And so that's something that we've already been very mindful of in the way we kind of selected the godparents. And, you know, I think as we move along in our journey as parents and in our relationship with our kids, we take very seriously educating and informing ourselves as much as we can, but also making sure like all the different resources we use to teach them how to read, the movies we watch, the children's books we have, we're making sure that they learn about all different kinds of people and lived experiences and putting an emphasis in those lived experiences that both my partner and I cannot speak toward. So that's something we're both very, very conscious of. And, and you know, I kind of laugh because it, you know, in my memoir, I talk about it. And this is generational. This may have been that time, everything else. I mean, my parents are both fantastic parents, but they did not, <laughs> a lot of the work that they did in terms of speaking toward identity or cultural competence, they probably would even acknowledge themselves they could have done a better job with, but they did the best they could in that time as we are all doing as parents. And I'm sure that that one of the things I've always said is I say, one of my dreams as a parent is that I'm going to get to a point where my kids are going to be, they're already my teachers, but where I will be obsolete in my orientation about the world. And then they will be my guides. Like to me, that's being a parent the right way. Like I should make myself obsolete. If I parent the right way, my kids will be worldly enough and informed enough in ways that they will teach me about the nuances of the world where my tools will no longer be functional. That's me doing things the right way. There's no shame in that. And so I look forward to the day where my kids are teaching me <laughs> in ways where my obsolete tools are no longer serving me. You know, I think that every every parent is hoping that they're going to be able to get their kids to the point where they are able to, you know, fly from the nest and be able to be self-reliant and be able to be strong and independent. You know, I, I specifically feel that about my daughters. You know, I want them to be to be raised as strong, independent women, to be able to to go off on their own and be able to live the life that they're meant to live. And as a part of that, we, you know, we introduce different experiences and we have different experiences and we have those memorable experiences that are meaningful. And sometimes there's just meaningful between the two of us, but sometimes they're more meaningful in different ways. As you think about the the years that you've had with your daughter so far, what's been the most memorable experience that you've had with her thus far? One of the things that I think is part of the tools that we use to try to orient, you know, orient our kids around, you know, about the world, and and also trying to instill in our daughter that that. Ability to be independent, to be self-reliant, having the ability to travel. This is obviously in much more so in a, in a non-pandemic world. But some of the most special experiences for me, I think, are being able to travel with my daughter and even going to places where, I mean, and, and you know how this is, especially with a five-year-old, this can be just, you know, going to the dollar store can be its own, can be its own uh, experience. But just watching, you know, I think it's something you, I think one of the great joys of being a dad is experiences that you've taken for granted that you are suddenly gifted fresh eyes to see this moment or this experience or this place when there is a three-year-old or a five-year-old that is discovering it could be like a pom-pom or cotton candy or the house, you know, your, your grandmother lives in or whatever it might be. And suddenly you're gifted with this new way of seeing things. I think just like going on these trips and seeing things and her demanding, I mean, being with a two and a half or three-year-old, demanding that you, that you slow down. You slow down the way you look. You slow down the way you, you, you walk. 
the way that you see things, you know, you can't rush through seeing things. I think the lessons of that, I think life becomes so much more still and so much more lush when the pace is slowed down. And I think I've had so many experiences like that. I mean, I, I we, you know, before we moved to Atlanta, you know, we would take our daughter. She loved going to Mets games at City Field. So just, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, but you know, it's like being at City Field and watching how much joy, like eating a hot dog. I mean, which which is which is the best, you know, like that's most of the reason I go to baseball games is just for the, the snacks. But I mean, just watching how excited, I mean, she looked the whole week, she would look forward to a single hot dog at a Mets game. And I think about the ways that that teaches me about the priorities of my life as a person, as a man, as a father, and also just truly the, you know, the art of living. And she instructs me on that every day, the art of living and the art of seeing and the art of experiencing, which in many ways is just to slow down and to be present. Yeah, slowing down is not always an easy thing, especially oh, yeah. as your kids get older and they push oh, yeah. you to move even faster and they move even faster physically, mentally, yeah. emotionally, yeah. and more. As you look at the future for your daughter and you think about that in your mind's eye, what would you say is your biggest fear in raising a daughter today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of things that I joke sometimes with my partner that I, you know, in many ways, I'm really well equipped to parenthood. And, and the, a lot of the tools that make me really well equipped also make parenthood completely untenable, <laughs> which is mostly that I'm extremely sensitive and extremely emotionally present, which I think serves me well in terms of being being nurturing and and being able to help instruct and guide my kids on emotionally regulating and being emotionally literate and all these other things that are really vital, I think, to being alive and being human. But man, is it hard when you when you feel so deeply to navigate all the moments and all the emotions that that a child feels. I think it's just terrifying to see, you know, and, and this is something that has been reinforced across my daughter's life, but seeing the the myriad of ways that violence is plural against girls and women are so normalized and euphemized and pervasive and ubiquitous in everyday life. And that's whether we're talking about, I mean, it's just almost like every time somebody sees or meets my daughter, it's commenting on her physical appearance or what she's wearing, never anything else. With my son, I noticed the contrast with them commenting on a behavior that they find in some way admirable, but they never comment in, on what he's wearing, <laughs> you know? And also th then obviously noticing too, like the ways that it's just like bodily autonomy is just, it doesn't seem to be a thing with so many kids. It's like not building in healthy practices of just like consent about bodies, whether it's hugging or touching or wrestling or tickling. It's just, and me in my head, mapping out what that means for my daughter's bodily autonomy and safety and even like self-conception when she's 10 years old or 16 or 21 or 26. And that stuff is pretty terrifying. And then also seeing too, just like, it's like the kind of models and the kind of reinforced messaging she's seeing both in terms of mass media and then models she has from other parents, from teachers, from coaches, from whatever, where you see so many reinforced models. And of course, there's better role modeling, I think, for her than there was when my sister was a kid in the 80s. But still, it's like you see a ubiquity of just like models of princesses. There are definitely some princesses that are a lot more radical and revolutionary than there have been in the past, but still an overemphasis on still too much them needing to be saved, still an over 
emphasis on physical appearance, on <laughs> the fashion accessories they have that come with the toys that are being sold or in the movie or whatever it might be. And I think a lot of that, like my poem that we were talking about before we started recording, but my, you know, my poem about the princess industrial complex and just so many things that I think ultimately in different ways reinforce patriarchy and capitalism and also counteract the idea of girls and women being independent, self-reliant, having bodily autonomy and safety and all these different things. So I think it's just terrifying enough to be a parent to a kid, but looking at a world in which still persisting girls and women are so egregiously objectified and dehumanized. And we still live in a society that is in so many ways beholden to patriarchy and sexism and rape culture. And me trying to do all that I can to unlearn and fight back all the destructive messaging and the ways that I've been socialized to believe in that world and be complicit in that world and participate in those narratives, while also trying to reshape that world as my daughter is growing up to make it safer for everyone. And then being infuriated and terrified and even despondent, watching even people I love participate and reinforce all those scripts that are so damaging to my daughter and even maybe to themselves. And so, sorry, I, I give a lot of different things I'm terrified of, but yeah, it's, it's a lot. I think all of us have those fears that run through the back of our minds uh, in some aspect of their life, depending on who we are, what our past experiences are. None of us are given that manual when our children are born. So we have to learn as we go along. In raising daughters, it is such a different lived experience and their life is going to be a different lived experience in our own being that we're men, you know, we're males, and we are bringing that to the forefront in trying to raise daughters in society. Now, you mentioned the poem that you wrote for your daughter, and I heard that at the conference that I mentioned at the beginning, and I wanted to see if you'd be willing to share that today, because I think I felt that it was a really amazing tribute to who she is, who she will be, and what your hopes for her are. And then I want to delve a little bit into that as well. So I'm, if you're willing to do it, I would love to hear Absolutely. it Absolutely. First, I'll, I'll recite the poem, and then I'll talk a little bit about its genesis, its inspiration. This poem is called, If a Princess Tries to Kidnap Your Daughter, Face the Shadow. No, a princess can never evade this. The faceless man above, holding her translucent string, shrouding her in darkness. Brave his silhouette, dilated and distorted, swallowing each glimmer of light flittering from her body. No wonder she loves rhinestones. No wonder she is obsessed with pink, unveils her skin as though air might shepherd light towards her gaunt plastic and chest magnified by the male gaze she was never meant to be human. A siren called forth by war, Grief misnamed, distraction made to disguise our hearts with innocence. They have spent millennia readying this role for your daughter. Learn the chronology of what they will try to project her into. Princess pretty. Princess precious. Princess mixed girl. Princess fetish. Princess sassy. Princess Sexy, Princess Hot Girl, 
Princess Harlot. Refuse the epithet defended as compliment. It will not make her more special. It will not make her more safe. The word is dangerous and ubiquitous as a shaking chamber baptized by gunpowder. Refuse the pink tutu. Pink tube top made to fit a three week old. Endless tiaras adorned with fake Congolese gemstones. The hard etched thong made for a nine year old girl. Refuse the relentless pretties. They toss her way like glittering wreckage. I respond, President. I respond. Call her President Grace. They say well-behaved little lady. They say pretty little peach, pretty little princess. They comment on her eyelashes and skin tone as though we baked her from a ready-made biracial cake mix. I respond resilient, firestorm, brilliant, renegade, Joan of Arc, I yell back. Fannie Lou Hamer, Frida Kahlo, Alice Paul, Dolores Huerta. I tell them how she arrived, writhing in the full-throated yell, how she shrieked into life, 21 hours into labor, my daughter's pulse stuttering towards mute, how seconds away from being choked to death by the umbilical cord, she screamed her airways open so that oxygen could buoy her tiny lungs, how her head rose up on its own. A stubborn orchid from sturdy shoulders just seven seconds after emergency surgery, seven seconds from suffocating, our daughter will be a neuroscientist. A biochemist who discovers the cure to progeria or Ebola. Our daughter will shoot 90% at the free throw line and adore, and adore Sophocles, Audrey Lord, and Mahmoud Darwish. Our daughter white knuckles her way to sleep. Eyelids clenched afraid that she might miss something if she blinked. She is many things. She is everything. All things radiating at once, but one thing she will never be is a princess. Powerful the second time as well as the first time. Now, I guess one thing that I wanted to do is ask you, now, tell me about some of the genesis of this and why it was important for you to write this, but also now share it with the world. The story I often tell is is like going shopping for my three-week-old daughter and, and going to this department store, and it was like eight different shades of pink, everything sequined, and everything was only princess stuff. And I thought, what is this? <laughs> You know, I mean, this is in New York City, this is in Queens, in the most diverse, literally zip code in the United States. And this is what we're being offered. And me walking over to the boys section, like forget a gender continuum. It was just like binary, girls here, boys here. And to find anything related to numbers, math, science, dinosaurs, anything else, it was only on the boys side. And it was me thinking, you know, what is this, like how obsessive people were about people asking me, you know, what are you having? I got this question. The whole time my partner was pregnant, you know, I kept telling people, I said, listen, I said, we're praying for a human baby, but if we get a dinosaur, it might get awkward when they get older, but we're going to love them all the same. And that was my line. And people would say, what are you going to paint your nursery? And I'd say, we live in Queens. <laughs> we don't have a nursery. Like, we're in New York City. <laughs> It's a tiny apartment. But, you know, it just seeing, you know, like, and I think a few things that would come from that, but just how beholden people still are to this very destructive, rigid, and suffocating gender binary, as opposed to a gender continuum. But then, but then beyond that, too, you know, like, how much I would see people being so enthusiastic, I think, coming from a place that's well-intentioned, and saying, oh, I want to celebrate your daughter, but having that manifest in a way that was deeply like playing into this, these restrictive limiting notions of what a girl is supposed to be, 
whatever that means to the person who is projecting that messaging toward our daughter and seeing the various ways that would be reinforced and us being very insistent on saying, listen, we want our daughter to have access to the full spectrum of humanity, of possibilities toward who she is meant to be. We want her to determine what her fullest, best, most authentic self is. And we don't want to encroach upon that or inhibit that in any way. And that's really hard in the kind of world that we live in. It's a challenge every day. I'm sure a lot of dads can relate to this. It's definitely hard to be able to put yourself in that mindset, in that place, in being able to see the world around us in a different way. Because I think that for some men, we have blinders on. And until you have a daughter in your life, and you then have to see the world in that different way. And I think your poem talks to that. Like you said, going to the store, seeing the pink, the glitter, the things that are being marketed and sent out into the world for girls to take in. And sometimes dads do go out and see that. Not every dad does. Sometimes it's the mom that goes out and sees that too. And it's just reinforcing what they've probably grown up with too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's challenging in that regard. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that you do have a book out and I want to make sure that we talk about this because you have a memoir called Man Up, Reimagining Modern Manhood. And for those that have never read this before, when you talk about reimagining modern manhood, what made you decide that that was the memoir title? But also, why did you feel that modern manhood needed to be reimagined? Sure. So there's the title Man Up and then there's a subtitle Reimagining Modern Manhood. So I'm going to speak to both. I mean, just to give you a heads up, I mean, this is a gritty, raw, no holds barred examination. I grew up this very sensitive, tenderhearted, nurturing little boy who grew up in a very machismo, hyper-masculine cultural context and felt like I had to be an emotionless, tough guy who would sleep with any woman that I could to sort of perform and prove manhood. That was the model I had. I had a very one-dimensional model. And so I spent many years, I think, putting masks on and trying to basically erase the person that I was. And then got to a point in my late teens where I was so depressed and lost and in so much anguish over being this person that I was not, that I think I got to a breaking point and then kind of had to find my way back to myself. And the, and the memoir tracks that and tracks like all the mistakes and missteps and along the way. So just to give your listeners a heads up, I mean, it is uncensored adult content, <laughs> you know, wear a seatbelt. So I never heard about their big missteps and fumbles. It was always sort of couched in, other guys do this, but I've been reading Bell Hooks and Patricia Hill Collins and Kimberly Crenshaw since I was born. You know, And I said, well, I didn't grow up in a context with intersectional feminists and critical race theorists teaching me in a cooperative, equitable learning environment. That's not how I grew up. And so uh, the book is really living in that grit and in the complexity of that journey. And for me, if I was to like name something that was a real emblem of the ways that I was shamed, if I was to, to like pick a phrase or a symbol that I think signified me being shamed for who I was, it was the phrase man up. And so people would tell me to man up when I got emotional. People would tell me to man up when I was being tender or sharing or collaborative or asking questions. That phrase was like a sword that distanced me from myself. And, you know, I say like my mom used to always tell me the way that you kill a monster is you turn the lights on. And so I named the book Man Up as a way to put a spotlight on the monster that haunted me my whole life and to take power away from it, to diffuse the power of the phrase 
phrase that I think is so toxic and still one that that is used as a weapon. Now, the subtitle, which obviously resides in tension with that very intentionally, Reimagining Modern Manhood, is really trying to gesture and invite people into guys giving themselves permission to reimagine the script of masculinity. You know, when I was growing up, I was told there was one script. You got to follow this script. And I didn't even know what happened if you didn't follow it. I, I, it was just like, you didn't have a choice. You have to do this. You have to become this sort of this cartoonish archetype of stoic, aggressive machismo. That was the only script. And so for me, you know, the book is really saying, this is the way that I found my way to be back on the path toward my fuller, better, more authentic self, which is not to tell other guys, emulate this, become me. No, everyone has their own journey. Everyone has their own authentic version of themselves. But I think more than anything, it's trying to invite people into first questioning the assumptions to be a man. And then hopefully from there, out of that disorientation, out of that searching, like kids that are locked up in juvenile detention centers who've said that my book is the first book they read all the way through. And it's a book that even though their journey was very different than my own, saw a lot that they could resonate with and it had a transformative impact on them. So I think that's been exciting for me to watch the kind of discussions that it opens up. And it being a catalyst for men writing their own script, again, not having them emulate me, but for them to be given permission toward their fullest, best, most authentic self, which is, again, not to say that you've arrived at some end point. I have a long way to go. I will always have more to learn and unlearn. I will always be in flux, but I think I'm much closer to the person I meant to be today than I was five years ago, than I was 10 years ago. And, you know, I think it's also having models that are foils to the really destructive one-dimensional messaging we still receive about masculinity. Having models like you, Chris, and like the men that are a part of the community of dads with daughters and, and other communities like this one, I think that give men and give dads permission to be much better examples of men and healthier examples of fathers. And we can, and when we support each other, I think that's how we transform the world. It is so important to be able to support each other and, and lift each other up. I think that what you said is so critical because of the fact that one of the things that came to mind was a documentary that was put out by the Representation Project a number of years back called The Masks You Live In. Yes. In regards to men, but even more powerful, especially for dads with daughters, was one that they made after the fact called Miss. M-I-S-S, Misrepresentation. And both are really powerful books and they're powerful in their own ways. Misrepresentation looks at the issue of the media and how the media is selling the idea of girls and women's value in ways that we as men may not even realize. But when you watch this, you're like, oh, I get it. And then you talk to your wives or women in your life and they're like, uh, yeah. And you're yep. like, oh, okay. But the other documentary, The Masks You Live In, is all about men. And it's shaping a conversation about ha healthy masculinity. And if you have not seen either of these documentaries, I highly encourage you to go and check it out. You can go to the representationproject.org, both 
of the, the uh, films are listed there. I believe you can even see them in Amazon Prime. I believe that they're available there or Netflix. It's on, on one of the two that I believe I, I've seen them there. But your words reminded me of both of those documentaries that are out there because they were really powerful ones. And I think that the other thing, though, that comes to mind is the fact that every one of us has that baggage, has yes, that baggage absolutely. that we bring to fatherhood, that we bring to our identities as men, but also the baggage that we bring to the relationships that we engage in with people in our lives and the masks that we put on, the identities that we put over our sh shoulders, the capes that we wear, those are all just raw in regards to what unconsciously we're being told as men as we grow up. And some of us grow up in situations where we are ready for the world and we're ready to be vulnerable and we're ready to be able to be out there in front and be someone that is open to so much. But then there's others that are not. And that's okay. We're all at a different place in our lives, but we have to be willing to speak and say what baggage we have. Absolutely. Big shout out to Jennifer Siebel Newsom who did both those films. They're, I can't recommend them enough. Yeah, that's absolutely, Chris. Now, we always finish our interviews with what I like to call our Fatherhood Five, where I ask you five more questions okay. about you as a dad. Okay. In one word, what is fatherhood? Commitment. When was the time that you finally felt like you succeeded at being a dad to a daughter? Never. You're still working on it. I'm actually going to go back on that. That's not entirely true. Part of it is it's always a work in progress. I remember I, I would do my daughter's hair before I took her to daycare when we were in Queens. And there were a couple times I thought I did it pretty impeccably and did like a harder hairstyle. And I was pretty proud of myself. <laughs> And I'm sure with your children being multiracial too, the way that you have to do your daughter's hair is different than the way that I have to do my daughter's hair. Uh, yeah. And you have to learn. Absolutely. You have to learn like a, a completely of, different way. A lot of learning and a lot of practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I've never had long hair and my daughter's hair is different than my hair. You know, I know how to deal with my hair, but it's different. Yeah, yeah. And you have to learn that along the way. Uh -huh. Now, how would your kids describe you as a dad? Silly, fun, <laughs> loving, affectionate. Who inspires you to be a better dad? Ooh, so many people. My brother-in-law, Maurice, my father, so many. Those are the first two off the top of my head that I'm thinking of right now. You've given a lot of different pieces that dads today can think about to be able to be better dads. But but if you were to leave one piece, one piece of advice that you would give to dads today, what would that advice be? Oh man, one piece of advice. It's interesting because I, I actually just did a TEDx talk that's coming out soon called Eight Lessons from Fatherhood. And so I had eight lessons and they're also sort of from the pressure cooker of this last year during the pandemic. So it, it's hard to really, eight, but I'm trying to think of one that would be really, really profound. I mean, I think the biggest lesson for me, and this may, again, this may not be true depending on how a person grew up and how they were socialized, but the qualities that I was most taught to feel ashamed of are my most vital tools as a father. So like, for example, tenderness, empathy, commitment, nurturing, emotional awareness and literacy, humility, all those qualities. When I expressed those when I was six and seven, I was told that they were unacceptable for me to express as a boy in my cultural environment. I guess that lesson is something that I'd also invite or challenge other dads and fathers to think, you know, this is, I think, why it's it's important to at least call into question a lot of those lessons we were we may have grown up with because 
if I accepted those lessons as as the way things should be, I don't know how I would function as a as a father. If I didn't give myself permission to really develop those qualities and embrace them. So that I think is the is probably the most powerful one that I think about every day. Well, Carlos, I appreciate you being here today. If people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where should they go? The easiest places through my website is just carloslive.com. Carlos, like the really easy to spell Spanish name, even if you're as bad of a speller as I am. <laughs> Live, how we're recording this right now, carloslive.com. One word, carloslive.com. And I have stuff about my books on there. And if anybody has any questions for me or wants to reach out, you can find all my social media on there. And I, I promise I will respond to you. Well, Carlos, as I said, I really appreciate your willingness to be on today, but also your willingness to be raw and open and, and to share your journey in fatherhood. And I wish you all the best. Chris, I'm very inspired by the work that you're doing and the work the community is doing. And it's been really special to, to connect with you. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the Dads with Daughters podcast, we invite you to check out the Fatherhood Insider. The Fatherhood Insider is the essential resource for any dad that wants to be the best dad that he can be. We know that no child comes with an instruction manual, and most dads are figuring it out as they go along. And the Fatherhood Insider is full of resources and information that will up your game on fatherhood. Through our extensive course library, interactive forum, step-by-step roadmaps, and more, you will engage and learn with experts, but more importantly, dads like you. So check it out at fatheringtogether.org. If you are a father of a daughter and have not yet joined the Dads with Daughters Facebook community, there's a link in the notes today. Dads with Daughters is a program of Fathering Together. Find out more at fatheringtogether.org. We look forward to having you back for another great guest next week, all geared to helping you raise strong, empowered daughters and be the best dad that you can be. We're all in the same boat. And it's full of tiny screaming passengers We spend the time We give the lessons We make the meals We buy them presents Bring your A-game Cause those kids are growing fast The time goes by just like a dynamite blast Calling astronauts and firemen, carpenters and muscle men, get out and be the world to them. Be the best dad you can be. Be the best dad you can be.